Let's turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Don't be afraid to look up the index at the front of your Bible if you're struggling to find it. Uh, Sometimes we need to take a hit to our pride and say, well, I just don't know where it is. (laughs) But if you get to Ezekiel, then you go forward, you'll get to Daniel, Hosea, Joel. So flick through, you'll find Ezekiel fairly easily, I think. And then go forward from there. Joel chapter 2. Before we read, let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And again, we pray that you'd come uh, speaking your word into our souls. Once again, we ask that you would give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to read the first uh, 17 verses. And you may remember that in chapter 1 we've had uh, a description of the plague of locusts, uh, which we looked at last week. And uh, uh, chapter 2 starts looking towards the future. So the locusts were in the past. Chapter 2 begins to look forward. And he's building upon all that he's said about the plague of locusts. We'll say more about that in a minute. But uh, let's uh, read from verse 1. And God says to Joel, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, like there has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the, all, through the years of all generations." Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful enemy drawn up for battle. Before them... Peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on its own way. They do not swear from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons that are not halt and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, even now, declares the Lord... Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave uh, leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. 
Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room. And the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Amen. Mankind is made... For relationship to God. We are made for relationship to God. We in this room, we, we bear the image of God and are designed to reflect back to God something of His glory. We are designed to worship God and in doing so to discover our greatest joy and our greatest satisfaction. So to fail to worship him is to dishonor him. To fail to pray to him, expressing our dependence on him, is to dishonor him. To fail to gather with God's people in holy assembly is to dishonor him. To gather in such an assembly and to express with our lips what our hearts do not is to dishonor him. But such is the way it has ever been for the redeemed people of God. Is it not true? We experience the grace of God in redemption. We reach the the heights of joy and gladness at one time, only to drift away from him, drawn away perhaps by the pleasures of this life and and by its sadnesses and its difficulties. And we go away from God. But in doing so, we dishonor Him. Yet God, in His grace and mercy, continues to make Himself known. Continually coming to His people, again and again and again. You find in the Bible... God continually coming again and again and again to his people. Sometimes through hard providences. To extend the arms of grace and mercy and his abounding love to his people. So the the prophet Joel comes out of nowhere. Uh, We can't tie him, as we saw last week, we can't tie him to a particular time in history. There's no no indication in his his book of any particular historical event that he is uh, uh, reflecting or a time marker or anything like that. So in a sense, he comes out of nowhere at no particular time. And so he comes to us today with the same message. To bring to light the sins of neglect of his people. And God does so by bringing about certain events in history. And so in chapter 1, we, uh, we saw the disastrous effects of a, a plague of locusts on the lives of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. 
And now he follows up with a prophecy through Joel. All all this destruction of crops, all this destruction of produce, of fruit, of wine, of oil. What does it all mean? What are the people of God to learn from the disaster that has befallen them? Is it a time for the people of Judah and Jerusalem to to get together and to work out some practical solutions to the devastation that's been caused by a swarm of locusts? To use the best of their science and their ingenuity to overcome the practical problems? Is that the first thing they should do? Or is there another step that they should take first? Yes, of course. There is another step they should take. First of all, before, after any disaster, to wake up, to lament past sins, to recognize our shame, to follow our spiritual leaders and turn to the Lord. Whom they, have, whom they have neglected and forgotten. And to call upon the Lord and to cry out to God for an answer. Friends, Joel has a message for us today. Perhaps even for this church. It's certainly a, a message for our society. With all the fears and panics about the state of the planet and everything. And maybe there's much that's good about that. But the fears, the, what is the answer of the world to these things? To turn to our technology, to turn to our financial systems, to turn to all kinds of things, to try and solve the problems. Where is the turning to God? And maybe in this church, we need to learn also to turn to God, to have the habit of turning to God and to cry out to Him. If we call ourselves Christians... Joel comes to us with a warning that this comfortable life that we lead in our western churches can be taken away in an instant. And at times God will do that in order to wake his people out of their comfortable slumbers and call them once again to trust him. As we come to chapter 2, We move from looking at past events to now looking towards the future. And God begins to say more about the coming day of the Lord. You see that there in verse 1 of chapter 2. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And that's where I want to begin this morning. To think about the coming day of the Lord. You will have noticed if you were here last week or you listened to the, the sermon last week that... Uh, the day of the Lord was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15. And Joel used it as he was speaking about the locust plague, the day of the Lord. Now, what is this day of the Lord? Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. What is this language of the day of the Lord? 
Well, it's covenantal terminology to do with God's covenant with his people. And what it does is, what it speaks of is God's ultimate authority to bring to fulfillment all that he has promised in covenant with his people. You can see all the promises of the old covenant in Deuteronomy 28-29. Some blessings and some curses. Blessings for faith and obedience. Curses for disobedience. And this is what he is speaking about when he's speaking about the, the coming day of the Lord. Where he is going to bring about... All that he he promised, whether that is blessing for those who know salvation or curses for those who don't know it and have rejected God. In other words, the whole idea of the day of the Lord speaks of that final exercise of the authority of God over sin where judgment comes on unrepentant sinners. And where salvation is seen to be delivered to all those who trust in God's way of salvation. Which of course we know is through God's provision of his son Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament it was to rest on the promises of God that point forward to Christ. Today we have seen Christ come and we rest on Christ. It's all about Christ, the way of salvation. But why did Joel uh, speak about the day of the Lord in relation to the plague that was in the past? Why does he suddenly bring that in at this point? I think it's for a simple reason that when you grasp that God is in charge of history, all of it, even down to your personal history, you understand that God does not simply write down what is going to happen in the future, But he gives foretastes of it in history. Through your personal experiences. Through community experiences. And so the experience of a disaster of the the plague of locusts was designed by God to give people a taste of the judgment that is to come. It's not the full thing. Just a taste, a reminder. To remind the people of God of the authority of their God. And now in this chapter, so chapter 2, Joel speaks again of the day of the Lord. In verse 1, the day of the Lord is coming. He now speaks about a future day of the Lord. And he's going to speak about it again in chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And uh, he's going to mention it again in chapter 3, verse 14. And we'll come to that in due course. And so the, the idea of the coming day of the Lord is actually a theme that is threaded through the book of Joel. The day of the Lord is coming. And that's what the people of God had forgotten. 
uh, they become very comfortable. It's a land of milk and honey. It's the, it's the fruitful land. It's the beautiful land. And uh, you, as we thought last time, you can imagine the, the joy of uh, the crops being gathered in and uh, uh, the trees being harvested and uh, uh, the animals and the, uh, the livestock flourishing as they graze upon the land and all the good things that can, be, that can come from the, the produce, the oil, the wine, the food, the, all the good things. You know, so they just need to labor a bit, labor and, and work hard and, and under God's blessing they receive so much and they become comfortable. They're happy with their lands, they're happy with their crops, their animals, their money, their enjoyment of life. Uh, but then God uses this experience of the plague of locusts to speak about what is yet to come. The coming day of the Lord. Now you may remember back in chapter 1 that the, the plague of locusts was described using military, military language. Um, if you look back to chapter 1 verse 6... Uh, here they're described as, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. So they're locusts, but they're described metaphorically as lions. And it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree and stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. This is what locusts do. They rip to pieces and leave shreds everywhere uh, as they eat everything. But it's described here as a nation, you know, like an army that's come. And uh, it takes over. Clearly it's a metaphor. Uh, because the, the effects are all to do with locusts. It's all the effects that locusts bring. But in chapter 2, that military, military language seems to be, as it were, kind of turned up to 11. <laughs> and, uh, you know, full volume. And it's now a full-on description of a military army. And uh, there's actually no mention of locusts in the passage that we read. There's a, there's a mention towards the end of the chapter. But um, there's no mention now of locusts, just of armies, people. And, um, and you see there in verse 2, uh, when it describes the darkness and the blackness of the gloom that is coming... It says, like blackness, there is a spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. And the mention of an army is, is, is carried on in verses 4 and 5. It's a well-equipped army. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Um. And so it goes on. Now, this, this change in mood, I think, from uh, thinking about locusts in a more concrete form uh, to dealing with a military army uh, has divided interpreters. How do you interpret this? Is he still talking about locusts and still using an extended metaphor here? Uh, in, in many ways, some of the things do fit with the idea of, a, of locusts. Swarms covering the land, the, the blackness of the sky, and so on. Uh, maybe that's true. Some others, like uh, John Calvin, for example. Always good to read John Calvin on these things. Um, he, he believed that Joel was foretelling real events that were going to happen under the Assyrians. 
you know, the, the Assyrian Empire was going to come. And you remember in 722 it overran the northern kingdom of Israel. And then eventually they were overrun by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians came to Jerusalem and took over. Sacked Jerusalem in 586 BC. Uh, the, only, the only problem with John Calvin, how dare we disagree with John Calvin. Uh, but the only problem is Assyria is not mentioned anywhere. That's the trouble with the book, book of Joel. There's no nation mentioned except a couple of small nations, a few small nations in chapter 3. There are no great empires. And so is it really about a, a future event um, that we can look back on from this vantage point and say that's what it was, he was talking about? I'll leave that with you. I'm not going to decide that question. I don't think we can. Whatever you think about that, though, it is to miss the point to spend all your time obsessing about trying to identify the specific event. The simple fact is that God is not revealing the particulars at this point. He is simply saying something is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. A greater day of judgment is coming. And the book of Joel, in fact, if you read the whole book, is causing us to look far beyond even those events in history. To far beyond our own history. And we'll see this as we go on in the next couple of weeks. So this is far beyond... A short term or a medium term historical event from Joel's perspective. But it's looking at, I think, an ultimate event. The coming day of the Lord. The last day. The day of the Lord. The day of judgments. The day when the righteousness of God is on display. And his justice will be seen to be done. And that time will be difficult, a difficult time for all. And it will be under... The power and authority of God. Look at verse 10. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That army of locusts, that was God's army in your past history. But it tells us about and reminds us of a future event where God is going to come in power and execute his judgment on unrepentant sinners. Friends, let me urge you this morning, as you think about your life, and you think about the disasters that maybe have happened in your life, and all of us have something that we can look back to, I think. Or maybe as a church we have experienced difficult times, and certainly across the country as a church, we have experienced a a difficult 18 months. Let us learn to think spiritually about these events. Let us use them to remind us That there is a judgment coming. That there is a greater day of the Lord before us. Like Joel, to cry out to the Lord. 
Now, you might be sitting there thinking, uh, Stephen, we're, we're Christians. Why do we need to worry about it? I'm saved. Uh, here's the problem. God was addressing the people of God. We can't just dismiss it and say, well, I'm saved, and so that's easy, and not think about it. God was addressing his own covenant community. They had had the covenant sign applied to them. They had been circumcised. This is what makes them the people of God. This is what makes them Israel. To have the covenant sign. And whether you're born a Jew or whether you're born outside of uh, the, the people of Abraham. And, but you have come in. You've been a proselyte. You become a Jew because you've become circumcised. So you have the sign. But the, the message is to these people who have the sign upon them. Now in the new covenant administration, with the change of administration to the new covenant, there's been a change of sign, hasn't there? Baptism. So this could be a message to all baptized people. You children who have been baptized. You adults who have been baptized and forgotten about it. All of us who have been baptized. This is for you. This message is for you. It's not for the yes, there is a message for the world outside, but this is a message for the people in nominally in the church. God's coming in judgment. So how are we as the baptized community of professing believers to respond to what God is saying about this coming day. Well, this is our second point. And time is pressed on. So what's the second thing? Three things. Second thing, now is the time for repentance. Now is the time for repentance. So we come to verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The right response to all the difficult times that our lives, in our lives, uh, the right response that we should be taught and we should learn is to repent of sin. The lesson here is for God's people. While there is time, repent of your sin. So I need to explain just a little bit more about repentance and its place in the Christian life. There are some people that think that repentance is only something you do when you become a Christian. When you first become a Christian. When you come to faith in God through the gospel of Jesus Christ and you believe in him and trust in him. But then you also undergo this 180 degree turn from the things that you loved and you wanted to do with your life, and you turn 180 degrees to to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ, and you say, I want to live for you. That's what, essentially, what repentance looks like. But there is a mistake that people can make to think that, well, that only has to happen once. You know, when I first come to faith, then I just, I repent once, and then I'm set. Uh, I remember... uh, in 2003, going to Belarus, much in the news at the moment, but I went to Belarus and I met a Baptist pastor there telling me how he became a Christian. And he, and he, he used a very specific term. 
He said, there came a moment where I, I repented of my sins. And that for him was coming to faith in Christ. I repented of my sins. Now I didn't have a long enough conversation with him uh, to, to find out whether he just thought that was a once-off. I hope it wasn't. But it's striking, isn't it? You can load everything into that one event in the past. But repentance is actually a pattern of life. It's a pattern of the Christian life. Just like continuing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to rest in his grace and his mercy, to trust in the saving work of Christ, is an ongoing truth. And to be a fact of the Christian life, you never stop believing if you're a Christian. So you never stop repenting of your sins. And if you're not repenting, you're not believing. And vice versa. So just as our, our faith can be weakened as we go through periods of, and we can go through periods of doubt because of our sin, so too can our desire to repent of sin. Our desire to repent of sin weakens. When was the last time you thought about a sin you need to repent of? Are you repenting? Notice, have you repented once? Is this your attitude and disposition to your sin before God? You can't have true faith without true repentance. The two go together. Distinguishable but not separable. So what's involved in repentance? Well, two things to say about it from these these verses. Um, Firstly, it has to do with the heart. Return to me with all your heart. It's not about, as the Roman Catholics say, doing penance. Doing some sort of act of contrition that somehow wipes away the damage of your sin. People can do all sorts of hard things by choice, but can do it without a heart devotion to God. So it's not about doing penance, making amends and this sort of thing. It's first of all about the heart. As we've seen before, God doesn't just want our lips saying the right things or our bodies doing the right things. He wants our hearts. He wants our whole being committed to him. And so with our whole hearts... We repent of our sin. He wants us to think the right things. He wants us to love him and, and love the things that he loves. He wants us to hate the things that he hates. He wants us to desire to do the things that he wants us to do. And to not do the things he doesn't want us to do. And it's all to do with the heart. The second thing to say about repentance here is, is that it is about a return to the Lord. Verse 13. Return to the Lord your God. For that, you need to recognize that you have walked away from God. Half the trouble is, most people don't realize that they've walked away from God. They've begun to live life for themselves and they think that everything's okay. And then with horror, they realize they have walked away from God. And you need to return to God. You need to realize and feel the sense of grief that you have caused in your wandering and turn and come back to God. And just to say in passing, this is not about turning in on yourself and beating yourself up 
for all your past sins. I mean turning towards God and turning upwards to Him. Return to God. That's the only answer to all our psychological problems, you know, our problems, I think. Great many of the psychological problems we have would be answered by turning to God. The root problem, you see, is our sin. and We need to turn to God to have it dealt with. But do you see the, the graciousness of God in all of this? The reason that we can turn to God, having sinned in the past, and we can do so without fear, no matter what we have done, is because of what Joel says in verse 13. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents. See, the reason that we can turn to God, that we can come without money, without price, without trying to pay off the debt that we owe, is because of his character, who he is, because of his nature, that he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding instead in covenant love, steadfast love. Yes, he will judge the unrepentant sinner. But to his returning children, there is nothing but love to be found. Nothing but love. This is our God. And here's the thing. One of the tricks of the devil is to cause us to to stew in our sin. To make us believe that if we were to return to him with all this baggage of sin in our lives, all this mess of past events in our lives and bad decisions and and poor choices and bad treatment of other people and so on, what the devil does is he tricks us into believing that if we come with all of that, then God will have somehow a big frown upon his face and he will tut tut at you. And I know as, a, as a, a parent myself, sometimes that's how we treat our children, isn't it? When they're bad. We frown upon our children. We tut-tut at them. We give them a hard time when they come to us. And we, hold things against, we can hold things against our children. And maybe we've experienced that from our own parents. And human, human parents are full of sin too. But not from God. This is not our God. God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in covenant love to his children, his returning children. One more thing to say about repentance, and then we're we're done. True repentance is both personal and communal we do it personally and we do it together it's true that uh, the right response to our sins is to is to have personal repentance but sins of course are never done in isolation we're all sinners together and there are bound to be sins that maybe all of us or groups of us within this church share in knowingly. Sometimes families share in shared sins together and never tell anyone outside the, outside the family. 
we share in sins together. And therefore, expressions of repentance can never simply be confined to your personal quiet time in your bedroom. Notice what God calls his people to do. Not simply to have a a special personal quiet time, but to call a solemn assembly to gather the people And everyone is included. Look at verse 16. Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Everybody. Get everybody together. Friends, that's what we are called to do every Sunday. To gather together and to use the opportunity of gathering together to Repent of our sins and come to God. It includes the elders, the children, the nursing infants, everybody. And so as part of our worship, I wonder if you ever think about why we do what we do in this church. (laughs) Part of our worship is to spend quite a bit of time confessing our sins together. So we have a bit of scripture to encourage us to come to God. We have a prayer together to confess our sins and seek his help in repentance. We take some time to be quiet personally, to deal with God. And then we hear God's assurances from Scripture that he is that loving, gracious, kind God to all those who have come to him in repentance and faith. You see, there's an opportunity there for us communally to repent of our sins. Every single week. And then having done that, we then open ourselves up to hear from God in his word through the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, and the preaching of the word. And then when we do it, to share the Lord's Supper together as an expression of our bond together in Christ. And if you want one verse, you know, some people ask us in this church, why is it you don't have a Sunday school so that children can go out? So that us adults, we can have some, uh, some very uh, much better teaching. You know, we can concentrate better, we can, uh, we can listen better, we can learn things, and we can uh, really just get to grips with the scripture. Why do we have our children here? And if you want a verse to, to show why we have our children in, it's in verse 16. All our children are included by God to come into this worship environment and to learn what it means to repent of sin and to worship God. They are part of our covenant community. And they need to be trained to join with everyone else in this repentance and to return to God every week. Your children need to learn what it means to come to God. But it's not just about children, is it? It's about all of us making a point of expressing our true repentance from the sins of our lives and taking the opportunity to come to God once again. See, we're not just here to be taught. It's one of the great benefits. We, Of course, we can be taught. But it's, we're not just here to be taught. Far less are we here to be entertained you know, people like me can tell funny stories. I'm not very good at that, but, you know, we can tell funny stories. We can give motivational speeches. And you, you all 
leave here feeling uplifted and so on. That's not why we're here. (laughs) We're here to do business with God. We're here to repent of our sins and worship him. To do spiritual business. To discover afresh how gracious and kind and abounding love he is. And how he wants us to be free of our sins and our burdens that we we insist on carrying with us all through our lives. That's why you should be eager every week to come and be with God's people. And in fact, come back for the afternoon service. You should be eager to do that. See, I want you to come back to the afternoon service, not simply because I think you're missing out in the teaching, which you are, but you can catch up online if you want. It is that somehow, somehow you are missing out on the opportunity to do spiritual business with God. I, I do not believe that people listening to a sermon online are doing spiritual business with God in the same way that you do it when you're here amongst God's people. And it may be that you're the kind of person who comes because you want the teaching, but you have not learned what it is to repent before God. You don't know what it is yet to enter into that life of consistent repentance and spiritual dealings with God. Let's make it a priority then, as we learn from God's word, to be here whenever we can, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and to do with an attitude that says, I weep for my sin, I weep for our sins. Lord, help us and show us again your grace and your mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the challenge of your word. It continually reminds us of our need of you. Lord, satisfy our deep longings by coming to us and opening up our hearts and discovering that true and deep fellowship with you where there are no barriers caused by our sin and our bad consciences, that we may serve you in the land of the living. In Jesus' name, amen.